so much for that message and song. It is the gospel that makes a way for any sinner to come to Jesus Christ and be saved. That's what we've been talking about from the book of Romans on Sunday mornings. The gospel changes everything. The power of the gospel is in the truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and on the third day rose again. The power of the gospel is in the testimony of changed and transformed lives like yours. I hope your life has been transformed by the power of the gospel. The revelation of the gospel we began looking at a couple of weeks ago. The gospel reveals God's righteousness. And when God's righteousness is revealed, man's unrighteousness is magnified. We begin to see our own undoneness, our own unfitness. But this morning I want us to turn another page and look at the gospel reveals something else for us. As we're still considering the revelation of the gospel... The gospel reveals God's righteous judgment. And if you're a note taker, you can find the outline on the back of your worship bulletin. And follow along with me. The scriptures will be up on the screen. But I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, and even if you don't, grab one in the pew and turn to the book of Romans in chapter 1 and 2, because I'm going to be referring to verses in there. And some of them may be on the screen, but... Even if I move a little too fast, then uh, you'll be able to follow up with follow with me. The gospel reveals God's righteous judgment. Now, I want to give you three principles related to God's righteous judgment that are found in Romans one and two. First of all, if you look at chapter one, verse twenty, God says, "For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made." Even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. First principle when you stand before God in judgment, you will have no excuse. There'll be no excuses. You cannot say, God, I didn't know. You can't say, God, you didn't reveal enough of yourself to me. For as we saw in the last couple of weeks from Romans 1, God has made his, himself clearly seen, evident, manifest by the things that are around us. And he even says in that chapter we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the things that he put in us, his consciousness, his awareness, his image. Chapter 2, verse 1 says, first phrase, you are inexcusable. No man, woman, boy, or girl can stand before God and say, God, I didn't know. Try speeding down Clay Street. Or Dawson Street. 30 miles an hour, by the way, down Dawson Street. I very rarely see anybody going 30. But you get pulled over on Dawson Street, and the policeman says, Sir, did you know you were speeding? This happened to me one time. I told you the story. It wasn't in Dawson Street. It was in St. George Island State Park. And uh, if you've ever been to St. George State, uh, State Park, then you know what the speed limit is, don't you? 25 stinking miles an hour. <laughs> Who drives 25? Well, I was following traffic. Unfortunately, I was the last one in line. And guess who the policemen pull over? They don't catch the leader. They catch the last one in line. They pull me over. They say, sir, do you know how fast you were going? I said, as fast as the car in front of me. I know, I was smart aleck. And he had every right to give me a ticket. 
But he said, well, we can't catch everybody. And I'm thinking, so you catch the slowest one. <laughs> but I didn't say that. I'd already been smart aleck enough. And uh, this was on Memorial Day. He said, well, sir, today's a holiday, and we double our fines on holidays, and I have every right to give you a $200 fine. I said, yes, sir. He said, but I'm going to give you a break. I said, thank you, Lord. Thank God. I could have said, but I didn't know it's speed. And I honestly didn't really know that it was 25 miles an hour at that point. I do now. In fact, after I got done with that officer, uh, and you enter as you get close to the, uh, the buildings where the showers and bathrooms and picnic shelters are, it goes down to 15. Buddy, I was going 14.5 miles an hour. <laughs> I had a line of traffic behind me a mile long, blessing me out, saying, who's that old man up there in the front? But see, I can't plead ignorance. You get pulled over on Dawes Street, and you, you, you're going 45, and you say, well, I didn't know it was 30. You think that the officer's going to care whether you know it's 30 or not? It's, the truth is, it's 30 miles an hour. And if you get pulled over going 31, you have the right to get a ticket. He has the right to give you a ticket. Nobody has any excuses when they stand before God. Second principle, chapter 2, verse 3. And do you think this, O man, you who judge those practicing such things and doing the same thing, that you will escape the judgment of God? There's no escape. You cannot escape the judgment of God. Hebrews 9, 27 says that it is appointed unto man once to die then the judgment. Everybody's got an appointment, two appointments. Everybody in this world has at least two appointments that you didn't make. One's with death and one's before God on judgment. You will not escape those two appointments. Third principle is it doesn't matter who you are. Doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Doesn't matter if you're Baptist or Catholic. Doesn't matter if you're white or you're black. Free or slave. Doesn't matter if you're American or African. Doesn't matter if you're Chinese or Russian. Everybody will stand before God. There is no partiality with God. Chapter 2, verse 11. There is no partiality with God. Now, this awareness of these three principles, you may not have been able to say them, but this awareness that there's judgment has been placed in the heart of man. Chapter 2, verse 15, 14 and 15 tells us that when the Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do the things in the law, these, although not having the law, are law to themselves, who show the work of the law written where? In their hearts, evidenced by their conscience bearing witness. God said, I've put it in their hearts, in their conscience. Look at chapter 1, verse 32. First phrase, who, knowing the righteous judgment of God. Who? Who's he talking about who? Well, read up a little bit. Look at verse 28. He says, those that did not like to retain God in their knowledge, filled with all unrighteousness, and he then names all those sins. And he says, it's those people that know the righteous judgment of God. In other words, the New Living Translation reads that verse like this. They know God's justice requires that those who do those things deserve to die, but they do them anyway. God has put it in the heart of man to know that he must give account for his actions. A poll conducted 
several years ago found this. More than, more than four out of every five Americans agree that we all will be called before God at Judgment Day to answer for our sins. Now that says two things to me. First of all, four out of five, more than four out of five, agree that we're going to stand before God and judge for our sins. So there's at least one out of those five that doesn't believe they're going to stand before God. Does that change the fact that they're going to stand before God? No, it doesn't. They just don't think they will. Four out of five. Plus, the second thing it says to me, I'm kind of shocked that that many Americans, four out of five, think that, or live knowing they're going to stand before God one day. And they still live the way they live. God's righteous judgment. The gospel reveals it. What's the gospel? I just said the truth of the gospel. Jesus Christ died for our sins, rose again, was buried and rose again on the third day. That's the gospel truth. Remember our thesis. The gospel is not just something to, uh, the, the, to, not just facts to believe in. It's a life to be lived. But God's righteous judgment, the gospel reveals it, and I want you to see this. the main thing this morning is it's always according to truth. Romans 2.2. 2. We know that the judgment of God is according to truth against those who practice such things. What things? What he just mentioned in chapter 1. We went over those things last week. God's judgment is according to truth. That is, His judgment is just and right and fair because He knows all, He sees all. Even those who may not be committing such things, they, they have things in their heart or they're doing things secretly that nobody sees. You know, after committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed, David was haunted by what he had done. So that's what sin will do. It will haunt you. Sideline here is that you can, you can feel that guilt and conviction and then you can shun it and resist it to the point where you get hardened to it and you no longer feel the conviction and the burden of it any, anymore. But David felt this great sin upon him. And he cried out to God in Psalm 51. He said, God, you will be proved right in what you say. And your judgment against me is just, fair. David said, Lord, you've seen what I've done. And whatever you decide to do, you're right in doing. Listen, whatever God decides is right. It's according to his truth. Man will not be judged according to something that he didn't do. He won't be judged according to something that didn't happen. Or he won't be judged according to something false or wasn't revealed. But he will be judged according to the truth. And, God, and truth is always according to God. Truth isn't according to man. The Bible says there is a way that seems right unto man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Truth is not according to man, it's according to God. The Bible says, let God be true and every man a liar. The psalmist tells us that God's word is truth. Tells us his law is truth. Tells us his commandments are truth. The psalmist also wrote that all God's works are done in truth. Jesus said, I am the truth. 1 Timothy 2.4, the Bible says, it is God's will. God desires all people to be saved 
If he has desired all people to be saved, do you think he would withhold revelation and truth from some and only show it to others? What kind of God would that be? God has revealed this truth to all. He desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. But on your outline, you'll notice what men have done with God's truth. And I'm just going to breeze through these. Men have suppressed God's truth, held it back, tried to hold it down. It's what our culture is doing today. Let's take the Bible out of our libraries, our schools, our government offices. Let's get the Ten Commandments off the wall. Let's suppress God's truth. Men have exchanged God's truth for the lie. They've accepted what's wrong in place of what's right. They have disobeyed the truth, strayed from the truth. We've turned from the truth. We've resisted the truth. We've not believed the truth. We've blasphemed the truth. Brothers and sisters, don't be deceived. No matter what we've done with God's truth, we will not escape being judged by it. When men reject God's truth, what do you have left? You reject the truth, what's left? A lie. And that's what Romans 1.25 says, that those who rejected God's truth have chosen. It said they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. But it's worse than that. Listen, this is the whole crux of the message. It's not just that they chose the lie. We're talking about God's judgment. It's that God has turned them over to the lie because they rejected His truth. Here's the question for us this morning. I told you I was getting here and finally I'm here. Does God give people up? Can one go too far Reject and resist God too many times. Well, the Bible has the answer, and it's right before us today. Look at verse 24, 26, and 28. Verse 24. God also gave them up. Verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up. Verse 28. God gave them over. Now the phrase gave up or gave over is the same word in the original language of Greek and it, it means to give into the hands of another, to give over to one's power or use. Now what did God give these who rejected His truth over to? Well, verse 24 says He gave them over to uncleanness. Verse 26 says He gave them over to their own vile passions. Verse 28 says He gave them over to their own debased minds. Why did God give them over to these things? You see, God always gives ample opportunity for all people, any sinner, any violator of His truth, He gives ample opportunity for repentance, to return to Him. God has done everything needed. Chapter 1, He revealed Himself in creation. He put His image, He put His stamp on the heart of mankind. He gave them a conscience. He wrote in their hearts. Right and wrong. He sent His only Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross, to bear the sins of the world, 
buried him for three days, raised him again the third day. But many have still rejected God's reach. Proverbs 1 speaks of this. And I want to read most of the end of that chapter, and you can follow along on the screen, beginning with verse 20. God's wisdom is personified here, and you can hear it as God speaking. Wisdom calls aloud outside. She raises her voice in the open squares. That is, she's out there in public. God is out there in public. And when it says she, it's talking about wisdom, not God being a she. I want you to make sure that's what we're talking about here. But wisdom is personified as a woman. She cries out in the chief concourses. At the opening of the gates in the city, she speaks her words. In other words, God is crying out all over the place. Not in secret, not behind religious church walls. Out there in the open. How long, he says, will you simple ones, will you love simplicity or foolishness? Scorners delight in their scorning and fools hate knowledge. Turn at my rebuke. Surely I will pour out my spirit upon you, and I will make my words known to you. Because I have called and you refused, I have stretched out my hand and no one regarded. Because you disdained all my counsel and would have none of my rebuke. Because, God says, because you didn't want anything to do with me, verse 26, I will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your terror comes. When your terror comes like a storm, and your destruction comes like a whirlwind. When distress and anguish come upon you, then they will call on me, but I will not answer. They will seek me diligently, but they will not find me. Why? Because they hated knowledge. They did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would have none of my counsel. They despise my every rebuke. Therefore they shall eat the fruit of their own way and be filled to the full with their own fancies. For the turning away of the simple will slay them. God makes it plain and clear what slayed them. It wasn't God, it was their own rebellion that slayed them. If a person wakes up in hell one day, God didn't put them there, their rebellion against Him did. That's what we must understand. For that's the testimony of Scripture. But He says, The complacency of fools will destroy them, but whoever listens to Me will dwell safely. And will be secure without fear of evil. Back to our text in Romans chapter 1. I want you to notice something very interesting. In verse, those three verses, 24, 26, 28. We've got to look at the language, look at the words. Right before it says in verse 24, God gave them up. What is the first word? Therefore. Hint of biblical interpretation. Anytime you see the word therefore, you need to ask, what is that word Therefore, that means refer to the verses ahead of it. Why did God give them over to uncleanness? Because that's what they wanted. They chose it. They rejected God. Go back and read verses 21 through 23. That's the therefore. That's the reason God gave them up. Verse 26, he even says, for this reason. What reason? Verse 25, they exchanged the truth of God for the lie. So God let them have the lie. You want the lie? Here, have it. Verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. Why? Because, verse 28, they did not like to retain God in their knowledge. Now, this verse contains a contrast of phrases, and I'm going to try to explain it because I want you to try to wrap your head around this. I'm not trying to be technical, 
but it's very interesting. You don't get this contrast in the English language. In the Greek, the New Testament was written in Greek. The phrase or the verb did like. Now, the not is not part of the verb. It's in the text, but we'll deal with that in just a moment. Did like is the word dokimazo, which means to place your approval on. Now, according to this verse, did they place their approval on God? No, they did not like. They did not place their approval on God. It says here they did not like to retain, hold, or keep God in their knowledge. That means that phrase, God in their knowledge, means they did not want to have anything to do about whether they had to discern between right and wrong, between God's way and, and sinful ways. They just didn't want a discerning mind. They didn't want to have to, anything to do. In modern language, it would be they didn't want to think there was anything absolute. They could live like they wanted. They didn't have a discerning mind. They didn't want a discerning mind. When they come to something, if they wanted to do it, they just did it. They didn't want to have to think about whether it was right or wrong. So they did not like to have an approving, discerning mind about God's truth. Now, when we come to the next phrase, the next, in verse 28, God gave them over to a debased mind. Now, I told you the Greek word for did like is dokimazo. The Greek word for debased is adokimazo, which is the negative of the first verb. In other words, they didn't want an approved, discerning mind, so God said, okay, I'll take it from you. And he turned them over to a mind that has no discernment, which is no mind at all. An unapproving mind, an undiscerning mind, an un a mind that does not acknowledge God's truth in order to do unbecoming or unfitting things. A debased mind that cannot discern God's truth any longer. Why? Because they, that's what they wanted. So God said, if you don't want that kind of mind, I will take it from you. But see, every man was born with that discerning mind, but they rejected it. So God gives them over to that undiscerning mind. Does that make sense? Literally, that verse would read like this. They rejected an approving mind that acknowledged and discerned God's truth. Therefore, God gave them up to a mind that cannot, cannot acknowledge or discern Him. For me, that explains a lot of things. It explains a lot of things in our political arena. It explains a lot of things in our culture. We find this same word in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 8. By the way, if you remember, 2 Timothy 3 is talking about the last days. We read this a couple of weeks ago. Men will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, blasphemers, all these things. And then in that context, he talks about two men, Jenez and Jambres. And it says, they resisted Moses. And he said, so did these present day in Paul's time, these kinds of people that we're talking about, rejecting God. It says, they resisted the truth. They became men of corrupt minds. 
Here's, here's that same word, disapproved, dokimazo, disapproved concerning the faith. Because they resisted the truth, Paul says again, God gave them over to a debased, undiscerning mind. One author said this, Since men chose to give up God, God could do nothing but give men into the control of their sin, the sinful things that they preferred. In other words, God would not violate man's will and force him to do something he did not want to do. When men persisted in following their totally depraved natures, God allowed them free reign. The natural result was immorality of the vilest kind. This passage points to God's act of delivering mankind over into the control of utter human depravity. You know, some might think this is the way to go. Hey, just keep rejecting God and eventually He'll give up on you and quit bothering you. But listen, the very act, what are we talking about? God's righteous judgment. The very act of God giving one over to their own way is an act of judgment in itself. It's not a permissive act on the part of God. I'm giving you permission, free reign to do whatever you want to do. It's an act of judgment. It's a judicial act. Because sin begets sin. Darkness begets darkness. Then God's grace gives way to judgment. Listen, you don't hear much about this anymore. You turn on the TV and it feels good. But listen, the God of love is a God of wrath and judgment. Look at that cross. The cross is not just a symbol of God's great love. It's a symbol of God's great wrath against sin. How He hates sin. He hates it so much He let His own Son. And in fact, it says, the prophets say, it was God who did it. We want to blame the Romans. We want to blame the Jews. We might even blame ourselves. And yes, we are to blame. But it says it was the hand of God. God did this and it was pleasing in our sight. God poured out His wrath and the hatred of sin upon His own Son. The cross is a picture of the judgment of God against sin. We must not miss that. But it's because He loves the sinner that He sent Christ to take our place. God's wrath is revealed, verse 18, from heaven against all unrighteousness. Do not be deceived. God is a God of wrath against all sin. The Bible even says He is angry with the wicked every day. You say, how can God be angry and love me at the same time? Have you ever been a parent? Man, if you've ever been a parent, you know love and anger kind of go hand in hand, don't they? Sometimes I wanted to choke the life out of them kids. Not literally. Now, don't go reporting me to defects. Most of them are grown anyway. It's too late. Man, that'd make me, they wouldn't make me so angry. Bobby likes to say they revealed the anger in you. Yeah, that's what they did, Bobby. They revealed my anger. But I love them with all my heart. And the reason I get so angry is because I wanted them to be different and, 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 and change. And thank God they have. But if you've ever been a parent, you know love and anger go hand in hand. God loves you, but He doesn't love our sin. 
God revealed His wrath from heaven against all unrighteousness. You know what? This God giving up, God giving over, He did it to Israel. You read Psalm 78. Read about what they did to Him. Psalm 78 reveals, tells us the story of, of how He delivered them from Egypt, and then they're out in the wilderness, and they're, God's providing for their needs, but it's not enough. They... They wanted more. They kept, and they said, God, we want meat. We're tired of manna. Manna for breakfast, manna for lunch, manna for supper. We want something else besides manna. Don't make fun of them. You're the same way. So am I. And then they said, can God make meat in the wilderness? So God, it says in Psalm 78, in verse 29, said, yeah, God did. He provided meat. He said, they ate till they were filled. He gave them their own desire they were not deprived of their craving, but while the food was still in their mouths, the wrath of God came against them, and he slew the stoutest of them and struck down the choice men of Israel. Psalm 106, verse 15 tells the same story. He puts it like this. He gave them their request, but sent leanness into their souls. See, the act of God turning you over to your own sin is an act of judgment. It's not an act of permission. It's a terrible thing for God to give you over and leave you alone. That means, you're dis that means listen... That means you're doomed and damned before you ever die. You said, I didn't think that was possible. Well, what's not possible is for me to know who God's dealing with like that. Don't ever think, I wish God would just leave me alone about this. You resist God too many times. God gives you over. God gives you up to a debased mind to do the things you want to do. It's not a very popular theology. But it is supported in Scripture. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1.18, like I said, this doctrine makes things make sense for me. Paul said, for the message of the cross is foolishness to those who, what? To those who what? What's the verb? Is that future or present? He repeats the same truth in 2 Corinthians 2.15 and 4.3. 2 Corinthians 4.3. But even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are what? Are perishing. It's the same group of people Paul spoke of in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9. Through 12, he says, The coming of the lawless one, that is the Antichrist, is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that they might be saved. And for this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. All those that are taking pleasure in unrighteousness and just want, their, want the stamp of approval and us to shut up about it, they're in grave danger. But I want to remind you, this isn't our call. This ain't my call. It's not the call of anyone here today to determine whether that's true of somebody or not. That's not your call. God is the judge. We must preach the gospel till the cows come home.
Well, I should say, till Jesus comes back. To the atheist, to the agnostic, to the rebellious, to the one who keeps stiff-arming God, we must keep appealing to them. Come to God. Come to God. We never know when a person's reached this point. But listen, I'm here to tell you today, if you're here this morning and you've been stiff-arming God, this could be your last opportunity. This could be your last opportunity. A young woman who had been brought up in a Christian home and who had often had very serious convictions in regard to the importance of coming to Christ chose instead to take the way of the world. Much against the wishes of her godly mother, she insisted on keeping company with a wild crowd who lived only for the passing moment and tried to forget the things of eternity. Again and again she was pleaded with to turn to Christ, but she persistently refused to heed the admonitions directed towards her. Finally, she was overcome with a serious illness. All that medical science could do for her was done in order to bring about her recovery. But it soon became evident that her case was hopeless and death was imminent. She still was hard and obstinate when she was urged to turn to God in repentance. One night, she awoke suddenly out of a sound sleep. She had a frightened look in her face. And she asked excitedly, Mother, what is Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9? Her mother said, What do you mean, dear? She replied that she had had a most vivid dream, and she, she said there was a presence in her room that very solemnly said to her, Read Ezekiel 7, 8, and 9. Not recalling the verses in question, the mother reached for a Bible and she opened it. And her heart sank as she read the words aloud to her dying daughter. Now I will shortly pour out my fury upon thee and accomplish mine anger upon thee. And I will judge thee according to thy ways. And I will recompense thee for all thine abominations. And mine eye shall not spare neither will I have pity. I will recompense thee according to thy ways and thine abominations that are in the midst of thee, and you shall know that I am the Lord that smiteth thee. The poor sufferer with a look of horror on her face sank back on the pillow, utterly exhausted. In a few moments, she was in eternity. Once more it had been demonstrated that grace rejected, grace rejected, Grace rejected brings judgment at last. One can reject God's truth, but one cannot escape God's judgment. Psalm 96.13 says, For He is coming. For He is coming to judge the earth. He shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with His truth. But God will not reject one who comes broken and repentant. As David said in Psalm 51, you will not reject a broken and repentant heart, O God. This morning, 
could be your last invitation to come to Christ. You dare not resist them again. You're gambling not only with this life, but with all eternity. And what this life offers without God is not worth what you could have forever with God. He will not reject you if you come broken and repentant this morning. Every head bowed, every 